All right. So we're going through 1 Timothy today. We're going to be covering 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. And the title of this message is The Call to Orderly Worship. The Call to Orderly Worship. In this passage, we will see how gender, gender matters. Whether you are a man or a woman, your gender matters. And it matters within the context of what it means to worship God, what it means for the church to come together as one body to worship God, the almighty God who created all people, the entire mankind, both male and female. He created them both. And we talk in the beginning about partnership. And I I want us to think about partnership because a partnership is different from a team dynamic partnership. When we think about partner, we're thinking about two people, a relationship between two people kind of working together, right? We're, we're, We're talking about two people working together. And when we think about the partnership between, well, I guess it won't be necessarily two people, but we think about two categories of people, partnership between males and females. There's actually a lot of wisdom, practical wisdom, how God lays this out for us. And God, just how God speaks about partnerships, even in, just in general. Right? We, we think about what it means for a partnership to work. What it requires, when, if, whether you're going to a marriage, whether you're going to business together, whether you're working on a group project. Partnership works when each partner knows their own roles and knows what they're good at, knows what they're in charge at. Partnerships, they, they, they can work possibly if both people have equal say in everything, but it just takes a lot longer, doesn't it? it you just have to, you have to talk about it. You have to make sure, hey, before I do this, I make sure you're, you chime in. But when both sides have a, a certain mutual trust with one another, a trust that, hey, I recognize your skills in this, and I trust whatever you do. You want to make those decisions. Yes, we'll come back together and collaborate and evaluate everything we did. But I'm going to trust your work. You're going to trust my work. And then we're going to move forward together. There's a certain practicality to this. And in every kind of partnership, in every kind of even team, not only is there a Understanding of roles, usually in each area of life, when you're working with other people, one person typically has to lead. When you have dual authority, equal authority, it, it usually causes trouble. Usually it ends up becoming you're unable to lead because what happens if the two sides have different opinions? You can't come to a decision. The group goes nowhere. When everyone's trying to figure out, hey, and we're, we're waiting for something. But when there's one person who's needed, everyone trusts that one person. When there's trust, and that trust is important, then there's, again, practical wisdom with allowing that one person to lead the group. I mean, this is demonstrated to us, and this is not just practical wisdom like, in terms of like how humans should operate. This is how God operates. God the Father God the Son, the Son submits to the Father, obeys His will, does it willfully, does it joyfully, even though they're both equally God, equally glorious. The Son says, I submit to the Father. 
And the Spirit says, I submit both to the Son and the Father. The Trinity, though all three are God, equal, yet the harmony in the Trinity, the relationship of the Trinity, is built because of mutual respect, trust, and submission. And even when we study something like the Trinity, we, we see how God's role, God, God does everything, right? He, he created all things. He saved mankind from their sins. He saved us from our sins. But in, in all these things, each person of the Trinity also has their role in it. They have their specific function. In the same way, when God says he has created humanity in his image, that he has created male and female both in his image, what he's saying there, he's saying that he's created men and women in the image of God with distinct roles. They're both equal in value, but there are distinct roles given to both sides. We see and we, throughout Scripture, the men were called, called to lead, and the woman was called to be a helper. And this is the structure, this is the general theological structure set out from the creation that we'll see here played out within the context of a church, within the context of a worship service, within the context of a fellowship. This is what we'll see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 15. So take your Bible, turn with me there. I'm just going to read the whole passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. Here Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We see here in this passage, there is definitely more of a focus upon the role of the woman. That's okay. We're going to focus a lot more on the men when we get to chapter 3 and we talk about elderships. And we're going to talk about how men are called to lead by being taken on the role of an elder. So there will be a lot more focus upon the men later in our series. But here in this passage, there's definitely a focus on the woman's role within the church. So we will talk a little bit more extensively about that. But we see here four different calls within the church. And the first one we see in verse 8 is a call to the men. It's a call to the men to prayer. And, and we see here in verse 8 that Paul here, he's, he's continuing the conversation from, from earlier in the chapter in verses 1 to 7. Uh, earlier in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says he wants all prayers. He urged that everyone will pray for all people, right? Supplications, prayers, thanksgiving, intercessions made for all people. He says that in verse 1. He continues that here in verse 8. 
says here he desires then that in every place men should pray. Now the word men here is a different word from the word for humanity, the word for mankind. This word for men here in verse 8 can also be translated husband, but from the context, there's not, this is not talking about marriage, so we can determine that this is probably most likely just talking about male figures within the church. So it's talking directly to the men, and the call here to the men to say is to pray. And, and we want to read this within the context to say you should be praying for all people. You, in other words, the church is called to pray for all people. Men, you take the lead. You take the lead in praying for all people. You're the ones who should set the example in prayer. Let's take a look at how these men should pray. First, we see that prayer is not just words, but it's built upon righteous living. These men are to pray, lifting holy hands not talking about these hands are, are washed clean they're not you know not putting you're not just putting on some um some hand sanitizer and wiping them clean and lifting them up that's not what holy hands here is talking about it's talking about hands lifted up because these men have been living righteous lives they've been living pure before god and therefore they are able to stand before god and pray to him Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You see how God, God cares about where your heart is when you pray. It doesn't matter what words you use. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is. I mean, you can even quote scripture, but if you're not living a pure life, that prayer becomes undermined. There's no water to it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, and this is talking to Israel who are sinning. So talking about you, Israel, when you spread out your hands in your sin, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. These are not holy hands. Which tells us, men, this verse, though yes, is specifically talking about prayer, is also a call for men to live a righteous life, to live a pure life, to live a life that's honorable before God. This is how men should lead with their actions, living a Christ-like life. And this is the call for all men within the church, not just within the church, but within their families. Within every context, this is how men, Christian men should be. Live a righteous life so that when they stand before God, God hears their prayers. Paul gets a little bit more specific here, kind of dealing with really the, the, the struggles that many of us men deal with in our own hearts. And he says here that we are to, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we see here that prayer must not be inhibited by anger. Must not be inhibited by anger. And, and within the context of 1 Timothy, we, we, we learn in, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy that Timothy and the church was facing many false teachers, right? There, there's 
they were debating about truth. They're debating about theology, debating, debating about philosophy. And they're, they're wrestling, right, with, with right doctrine. And they're, they're, they're dealing with false teachers. And they even Paul mentioned some false teachers who made shipwreck of their faith, right? They're, they're not living righteous life. And so when, when that happens, and, and the, the men who know the truth within the church are trying to stand up for the truth, many times in our hearts, we can fall to the temptation of anger against them, right? We can fall into the, the temptation of just trying to win the debate, trying to quarrel them. And, and this is something that's innate in many of us. You know, we, we are driven by a desire to win. Uh, there's, a, there's a competitive nature within men. I mean, even if you say you're not competitive, it's most likely because we're just not good at whatever we're not competitive in, right? If you, when you're actually good at it, you're going to be competitive in that thing, right? In, in whatever it is, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a sport. But it can be video games. It can be anything. If you're good at it, you want to be competitive in it. And, and we, can, we can struggle with that because, to be quite honest, men, myself included, we, we struggle a lot with pride. We struggle a lot with showing off our strength showing off our accomplishments. And there's a sense there of, that's also in the sense of the way God created us to be strong, to, to, to be able to protect what's right, to do justice. But when sin interrupts, it often ends up becoming anger or ends up, be, ends up developing a quarrelsome spirit. And this matters. This matters before God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your guilt. You see, there, there's a sense that we need to be right before other people. Our, our hearts can oftentimes be telling different ways. We can, we can simply just... If, if somebody has something against us, we can just be like, you know what? They're in the wrong. We're in the right. I want to go to church. No, there, there needs to be some kind of reconciliation, an attempt to say, hey, we're going to be better in this. We're going to be Christ-like. We're going to be peacemakers. You see, here, again, this is a call to men. Verse 8 is a call to men. And the men here are called here to pray without anger, without quarreling, with holy hands lifted up. And it's interesting that Paul here points out this importance of prayer for men. Because we can struggle to pray. We, we struggle to pray because prayer, prayers, prayers is, demonstrates humility, and yet we struggle with pride. Prayer means we are dependent upon God, and yet we fight for independence. Prayer takes hard work. And men, we can be very lazy. The call to pray here is one that really hits upon our hearts. And when I say our, I'm, I'm speaking with you guys as men. It hits upon our hearts that this is hard. 
This is something we don't like to do. We don't like to be dependent on someone else. We don't. We'd rather be lazy, not be able to do something. If somebody else says they can take care of it, let them take care of it. We'll just do our own thing. I mean, there's a reason why we all have our hobbies and we get so invested into them. We have to remember that we are created to be leaders. And as leaders, that means there's responsibilities. And with those responsibilities, it takes work to be done. And part of that work is praying. Recognizing that we, we are made in the image of God. Therefore, we are dependent upon knowing our holy God. Men are created to lead humanity before God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 tells us that, talking about head coverings, for a man should not out to cover his head. Why? Since he is the image and glory of God. See, men here are to set an example of submission and humility through prayer. And so, I asked them, for you guys, for you men, what does that look like for you within this church? You, you want to serve in this church. You want to help out in this church. And yet, many times, we can fail in just accomplishing this to pray. I mean, this, is, this, is, this doesn't require any special kind of gifting, no kind of special ability. It's us getting on our knees, recognizing God is God. We are humans and praying to him and offering petition, thanksgiving, intercession, supplications, not just for ourselves, but for all people. It's not thinking selfishly here, but to think about, hey, there are lost souls out there. There are people who are hurting out there. And yes, while I want to go out and care for everyone, we, I mean, I myself have a hero complex. I want to go out and save everyone. We are not that person. Let me do what we can do. Pray. Pray to a holy God who has provided for us the solution to the world in Christ. Coming back down, coming back to the context of this whole thing, this is talking again within a church context, within the context of a worship service. We see here men are to lead in this way. And so orderly worship is then led by godly submission to the Lord. By godly submission to the Lord. Here's a recognition that when men should pray, that means men should submit. Then in verse 9, Paul begins with the word likewise. Likewise, meaning he says here, I desire that men should pray, but likewise, I desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So we're talking about clothing, and we see here then a woman's call to modesty. A woman's call to modesty. And so just as, and, and so again, all of us should pray, but yet Paul specifically points out to the men, hey, you need to pray. You need to lead in this way because we, as men, we struggle with prayer. Right? If, I, if I look at prayer meetings, we see, tons of time I see a lot more women there. Right? We think that tends to be the general demographics of prayer meetings. Uh, but when I see the men there, I, I mean, I really appreciate it. I, it's, it's awesome to see them there. And, and, but there's, it's because there's a struggle for us men to pray. But in the same way, all people are called to be modest. But there seems to be some 
unhealthy tendency for women to care more about their bodily appearance. Now, I don't want to speak too much into this in terms of like, I don't, I'm not going to tell the woman here how to dress because you guys have your own people you get to talk to and, um, and your own mentors. And so you guys can talk to them and figure out exactly what, you do, what needs to, you know, how you should organize your closet and stuff like that. But I want to speak to the heart of things here. I want to speak to the heart of how do we make decisions around what we wear. Because what we wear is important. All of us are called to dress modestly, right? Uh, even, I, I mean, I, I know I get, I sometimes talk to my wife and I joke around. It's like, hey, can I just put this on, just walk up and preach? And it's like a, I don't know, this bright red t-shirt and just, or a tank top. And like, hey, let me just go up there and just preach in front of everyone Sunday, Sunday mornings, you know? And, and she's like, no, don't do that. So, like, you know, it matters for attire, not just for a woman, but even for myself. But there's a sense here for a woman, we, they struggle with that, right? Even when, you know, when, when I got married and, and Sharon moved in, like, she brought a lot of clothes in, right? And took up more than half my closet. And, and, and there, there's, there's something about that, you know, and, and, and while, you know, that's not necessarily, that's not, that's not a sin, right? Go and clarify, that's not a sin have a lot of clothes and to, to care about it, but we need, as we make decisions of, what we, of how, what we wear each day, it comes down to your heart. Now, it's interesting about women here, right? Women here is pointed out, Paul seems to recognize this, this seems to be a stereotype of our days too, and so, I mean, there's something about it, what is it? It's, I want to point out something interesting here. Scripture tells us that women are created to be the glory of man. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. So I, earlier I read the same verse, right? It says that man is creating is the image and glory of God. Then it continues. But woman is the glory of man. I don't know, there's something interesting about that. See, when it says here that man is the image of glory of God, what is man? Man is created in flesh. So then God is invisible, Man's flesh, therefore, he's the image of God, the glory of God contained in flesh. And, and so there's physical form. You can see it with your eyes. It's demonstrated and portrayed out to the world. Hey, this is God and the image of God portrayed out, the glory of God going out. Woman is the glory of man. There's a sense here that, yes, females are more beautiful than men. There's a sense here that, yes, Females are the glory of men. We, we, we lift them up in a way that's in the sense that like, hey, this is, this is woman. This, this, this is you know, my wife. This is a, a sister from my church, and she is beautiful. And there's, there's a make sense of that. And, and so why then do when women care about their physical appearance, there's, I, I believe there's a natural instinct to that. And that's not necessarily wrong. Again, it comes back down to the issue, the heart of your motivation. And, this, and, and there's one key word here in this passage, which is self-control. Self-control. What are you doing when you're making these decisions of what to wear? Are you exercising self-control in how you're expressing yourself? Because clothes express you, right? The, the, if you talk to the design industry, the fashion industry, they will tell you clothes 
are expressive. Right? They, they tell stories about who you are. And so clothes matter. And Paul here points out that these women should be in respectable apparel, not braided, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls and costly attire. And, but yet, what, what, should, what should women be, be dressed in, should be adorned in? It says here is that they should be adorned with good works. Good works. Godly women seeks to be adorned by good works and not with expensive clothing. And, you know, there, there's a sense of a cultural context here. Paul here, when during this time, those who were harlots or torch sons, they, were, they dressed elaborately during that time to attract others, right? They put on expensive clothing. They did their hair and all that. So they went out and did that stuff. Nowadays, if you were playing a harlot, you're most likely not dressing as much to, to do that. So, there's, so there's, there's a bit of a context here, right, in terms of the decisions they're, make, they're doing. But at the same time, we're, we're talking here just for in general, we just need to watch our own hearts when we make our decisions. Are you watching the way you dress both with are you doing it with modesty? Are you doing it with self-control? Are you, how are you portraying yourself to others? Because it matters. And the reason why this is passage is here within this context of worship, within this context of the church, right? Again, the, the, the main context here is that, hey, we have a Savior who desires all people to be saved. Let's be the church. And how you dress matters to that. And the context here tells us that orderly worship must be focused upon God, not our appearance. It, it's saying that our hearts here seeks first and foremost to honor God, not other people, not myself. First and foremost to honor God. And I'm going to direct my focus towards God. And that's the reason why I won't go up and preach in a tank because that will be distracting. You'll want to honor God. In the same way, how do you choose? How do you choose how you dress each day, especially when it comes to worship? Then, in verse eleven, Paul brings in another call. We see here the woman's call to learn. The woman's call to learn, and we see here Paul says he says, "Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness." And the word quiet here demonstrates a peaceful and gentle heart. It, it demonstrates a, a soul that is free from distraction. And again, the focus upon the worship of God. That's the context here, to worship God. One, it, we're talking about one that's saying, I'm, I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to, I'm going to be focused. I'm going to have a quiet spirit before God. And I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to learn. I'm going to hear his word. And I'm going to hear, his, hear the prayers of the men around me. And I'm going to learn. Learn what it means to be in community before God. Now Paul here, he goes on. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And, and I, I want to just kind of pull this apart a little bit. That the language here, the language here in verse 12 is functional. So it's not talking about an office here. It's talking about what 
he says a woman should should not be doing within the context of a church. He says here that women should not be teaching or exercising authority over men. And while later on he talks about the office of the overseer and one of the jobs of the overseer is to teach, so most likely that's why we say the, the overseer, the elder, is a is an office for men. Here, he doesn't say he does not permit a woman to be an elder. He mainly says he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over, over a man. Now, I, I want us to think about this because church, has, church, church today is way different from church during this time. Very different. It's, it's grown bigger. It's grown more. There's a lot more government oversight. There's just it became a corporation. Like if you, I work here at this church. We now have you know benefits. <laughs> we we have we need we need to administer all that. We have wages. We have taxes. Um, it's all that. There's there's a business aspect to all this. And within churches, there's also bigger programs. Right? It's no longer these these small house churches, where where really you're just gathering around, hearing the word of God, and you're just having dinner together, most likely. So there's, there's more programs involved. We have, you know, children's program because now it's like all these different families and you just need, you need pull, you pull apart and separate into different groups. You have youth programs. So can women today be pastors? I really think it depends on your definition of a pastor and what the responsibilities of that pastor is. Right? You, you have to define that because even the word pastor isn't, isn't what one of the one of the roles defined here in scripture is the word in scripture is found as elder, right? And, and so, what exactly is a pastor? I think that the definition, the role, has changed a lot over time. And so, we don't want to immediately. I'm saying this because I know we come from a more conservative background here at this church, and immediately when we hear about a woman's pastor, our minds can jump to conclusions. And I want to be careful of that. I rather say, okay, what do you mean by pastor? What are you pastor of? What is your role and responsibility? Because it could be okay that she has that role, depending upon her responsibilities. Right? And so, we, we, again, we want to be humble about all this. And, and so just want to put that out there. Again, this doesn't mean women should never teach. I believe here it's talking about specifically over men, specifically over men. So women should still be are called to teach. Or, I mean, it, within the within other passages, the women's are moms or mothers are called to teach their children, right? and, and so there's there's still aspects of teaching, still aspects of of having certain ways of serving. There's different ways of serving within the church. There's there's now within the church administration pastors and uh, I guess they're called executive pastors and things like that. So those, there's different things and stuff like that that you can do, um, and as we're going through all this, I just want us again just. Stick with what scripture says. Now, again, the the focus here is not necessarily on what Paul prohibits or what scripture prohibits, what God prohibits here. The focus here for women is the reminder of a call to be quiet and a way to learn. And I want us to, to bring us back to that. Women should learn quietly. Now, what is the issue here? Paul goes on, verse 13, goes back all the way to creation. 
He goes back all the way to creation. He says here that Adam was created first, then Eve. But note what it says in verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. In other words, Satan here targeted Eve. Satan targeted Eve. It's interesting here because God, when God created this world, he says, hey, I created a man. Out of man, I created a woman. Right? There's an order to this. And he tells man and woman, you have dominion over all the earth, over all the animals, over all the beasts. But when Satan comes in as in the form of a snake, he deceives the woman. The woman leads the man to sin and reverses the order of all things. You, you see how God has created all things in a way that he ordained is right and just the way that things should be. But what sin does, what Satan does, he wants to flip all that around. He wants to flip all that around. Which, and that's why this matters within the church. Male and female roles matter within a church because Satan will always try to flip this around. Now, men still lead. So original sin, original sin was still attributed to Adam because Adam is the head of humanity. Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man. Right? Didn't, didn't mention Eve at all, just one man. Adam brought sin to this world. When he failed, all of humanity failed. But this does not take this does not take away the responsibility of what the woman did. She was still deceived. Right? Recognize original sin again counted unto Adam. But that doesn't mean the woman isn't any less responsible. And this here, this pattern of sin found here in Genesis 3, it has, in a way, been reflected through the course of history, even in our own lives today. Women can cause disorder not just within a family, but even within church, when they quarrel with their male counterparts, when they tend to try to exercise authority over them. And we see this mentioned throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, this is the curse of sin. This is the start of it, where God says, hey, you, woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the word desire there is saying, I, don't, I have a desire to be over you. I have a desire to, 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 to have authority over you. That's what the word desire here, to control you. Your desire should be for your husband. And this becomes an inherent struggle throughout history. So much so that in Proverbs, in Proverbs, they talk about a warning against quarrelsome women. This quite cut and dry here. Proverbs 21, verse 19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I mean, this is quite frank here. And, and while no, no man should live in a desert land if you're, you know, before a quarrelsome woman, the proverb here is telling us that to be before a quarrelsome and fretful woman is difficult. It's tough. It, it causes disorder. 
Proverbs 27, verse 15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. And that, in other words, a quarrelsome wife is like torture. Is what this proverb is saying. And I, I want us to think about this. And again, I, I don't want to speak for the woman here because I'm not a woman. But I want us to just, I want you to ask yourself in your heart, what are the struggles of your own heart? What are the struggles here? Because like, when, we, when, we, when we hear about stereotypes of women, when they're, they can go, they, they, maybe they, they vent certain ways, they, they, want, they want people to hear them out, and, and yes, you should be heard. There, I think there's definitely things that we need to, again, listen to here for men as you're reading this. You should hear all this and understand, hey, there's struggles here that, that, we, need, that we need to work through that, that women struggle with, and we should make sure we, we, we listen to that and we recognize it. But at the same time, is there enough self-control for the woman to say, hey, I know I wrestle with this, and I must learn how to be quiet in order to help produce an orderly worship, a peaceful worship before God within the church. Can that that happen? And so we see here that orderly worship rejoices in quiet submission to God's authority. And and all this, again, matters about how worship happens, how worship works, how church functions. And I put here that godly authority matters because, again, when men lead, men should be leading in ways that living righteously, lifting holy hands, praying. In other words, being humble, being gentle with their authority, leading in right ways. But women come alongside helper, fulfilling their role in quiet submission. And that produces a joyful worship before God. Now, as I mentioned, yes, Adam, Adam is here was the attributed original sin, but that doesn't mean the woman is any less to blame. She still holds responsibility. How then, how then does she deal with that? Because that's, that's a hard guilt, right? Uh, imagine if, if, I mean, I know many of you guys here are not married, but imagine if you were married and you caused your husband to stumble and, or tempted him to convince him to do a crime and he has to go away in jail and ruins the family. Like, how will you feel? You, you'll feel immense guilt upon you, right? How, how do you deal with that? How did Eve deal with that, knowing that Adam fell because of her? Well, this then gets to verse 15. And we see the woman's call to childbearing. And here Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing. She will be saved through childbearing. Here, Paul, Paul's not saying that she'll be saved, like spiritually saved for all eternity through this work of childbearing. Because we know for all people, everyone's saved by faith through grace alone. But he's here talking about some sort of redemption for women. Some sort of redemption, I believe in connection with Eve. 
Because, again, Genesis here is in the background of all this. And he talks about childbearing. And childbearing is a distinct role given to women. It's a distinct role given to women. I, I know right now out there in society, they're, they're talking about gender and you know, and you can no longer say pregnant woman or not saying pregnant person and all that. But we really think about it in logical ways. Only women can childbear, right? Only biological females can bear children. So, so here, childbearing is a distinct role given to women. And what that means here, what God has given to women is a gift. It's a privilege to bear children and to discipline them. You see, Eve has, has Eve brought sin in the sense that she deceived Adam or tempted Adam. Don't really know exactly how what's going on there, but but Adam followed Eve's taking the fruit. So Eve led Adam into sin, but yet here through childbearing, Eve, a woman, they're not cast aside as second class sin. They're no longer saying, "Hey." Because you did this, no longer are we going to now work through you. Instead here, they're given the distinct privilege to bear children, to still fulfill the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. Still given the privilege to say, hey, I'm going to bring the image of God and cover the earth. This... This here lifts up the domestic role for womanhood. It's speaking about the blessings of godly womanhood here. And, 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 and it seems like we look throughout history, not just even our society today. Yes, we see now today that the woman's role in the home is constantly being challenged. But that's actually being challenged throughout history. Even when, even when they were, you know, in, I guess we think about, you know, early America, right? And their women usually are just at home. Yes, they don't have as much rights, right? We care about those rights. Um, but that itself would still belittling of the women's role because a lot of times the men would just exercise ungodly authority in the home over that. And that was wrong. What we're talking about here, you see, society seems to be always below the women's role at home. Here, scripture says it's important. She will be saved childbearing. See, it speaks highly of the woman's domestic role at home. This here is important. Now, I, I want to be as well understanding of all this. Because again, we, we live in a certain culture and time. We have to understand how to apply these truths of scripture into our world today. Do children Sorry, do women need to bear children? No. I believe Paul here is speaking generally to all women. Not saying each female, every person is called to something different. Some are called to celibacy. But the, the, the idea here is that childbearing is a role specifically given to women. It's not saying that every woman must bear children but there's a specific role given to them because we understand God is the one who still blesses still the one who blesses marriages with children right there we, we see instances of scripture 
where the wife was barren for many, many years until God said, all right, do this time. Sometimes they remain barren and never have a children. Right? God is the one who deems all that. And we live in a fallen world as well, and that's the reality of it. And some of us can't have kids, and that's just the reality of it. Right? And so this is not saying that if you don't have children, you're any less than other women. The, the, the target here is the heart. I always want to get back down to that. The question is, do you, talking to females, do you want to bear children? And if you say no, why not? And I think that's where you have to do some digging. I'm not going to answer that question for you. And that's where you have to wrestle with that in your own heart before God. As we take a look more at this passage, it says here that they will, she will be saved through childbearing. So I believe that she here is speaking to Eve, but then, ask, then it says, if they. And so Paul here thinks about Eve, and then he applies it to all, all females. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Again, the key is self-control here again. And I believe here this is speaking in context again with Genesis in the background. Because God has cursed, has, has cursed all mankind because of sin. And the curse for a woman was that she will have pain during childbirth. She will, she will experience labor pain. And, and there's this pain that comes with it. And we, we understand that pain. There's, there's labor pains. There's the pain of barrenness. There's the struggles of feeling inadequate when you are a mother. All because of Eve's sin. But it says here, when one endures, when one endures in faithfulness and holiness and submission to God, there will be blessing to be found in childbearing. Your children will become the greatest gift in the world. And, and, and there's, this, is, this is a privilege and a gift that for men, or myself, I will never get to experience. There, there's, there's a certain kind of relationship that a mother has with her, with her child, the, in a sense of bearing them, of, of giving birth to them, of, of nurturing them, a, a certain relationship that's, that's unique and special that a father can never have with a child. And there's a certain gift to that. And, and, we, and I want us to say, that's a privilege to hold on to. That's a privilege to, privilege for you to really just endure and behold, to hold on to dearly. And childbearing indeed becomes, becomes a full-time job. And, and, and it's, it's a difficult, I mean, this is the reason why when women goes out in the workplace and then they have children, work becomes harder for them in the workplace, right? It, it's, it's hard. There's difficulty around that. And not saying that for the females here, you shouldn't pursue careers because, you know, living in California, it's hard to live on one income and, and all that. So it's, and so there, there's definitely pursuits that needs to be that needs to happen. Jobs need to be had. And, you know, it's not wrong to pursue a career. But there is a sense here that it is difficult. It is difficult to 
with his children and to have a career. And it's, there's, there's a sense here that this is hard. And I want to sympathize with that. And I, I want the men to hear this so that when you do get married, you understand the value of your wife as the mother. And as we're speaking through all this, again, bring back to the context of this. So yes, the women are to learn quietly, not permitted to teach or exercise authority over men, but they will be saved through childbearing. And the sense here, Paul, or God here, is being wise. Because the, while, when a mother has such an important role in caring and bearing the children, perhaps God doesn't want the mother to be distracted by having to exercise such spiritual authority over the whole church. Because that just that would just be so much burden upon the woman if they were to have both. Perhaps God here is being wise and saying, you know what? I have given a woman specific roles in bearing children, discipling them, and they are blessed to do that. They are privileged to do that. For the man, lead your family, lead the church, and you disciple people there. And together we see a partnership a stewardship of different roles coming together so that there can be orderly worship. And so orderly worship here then, we see is protected through faithful stewardship of our roles. Through faithful stewardship of our roles. Now, to kind of conclude the sermon, I, I want to I want to bring us back to Christ. We also see here in the context of Genesis chapter 3, a promise given to Eve, a promise saying that, yes, you have failed, you have been deceived, you have led Adam to sin, and you will, you will have labor pains, you will face all that, but yet your seed, Eve, speaking to the woman, God, your seed will defeat Satan. That was a promise given by God in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The seed of the woman will defeat Satan. And the seed there is never called Adam's seed. Always referring back to the woman. And when we see here the ultimate redemption of childbearing is found in Christ. The ultimate redemption of childbearing is found in Christ. When he came down to earth, he was born of a woman. Born from Mary. And Mary demonstrates this certain understanding and privilege and blessing of what it means to be a mother. Luke chapter 1 verse 38, Mary says before God, says, Behold, when I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. This is Mary speaking when the angel Gabriel told her, Hey, you're going to bear Emmanuel. And she said, I will do what the Lord tells me to do. There's a sense of mission, quietness to her spirit. After Jesus was born and all these people came up and saw Christ and praised him and declaring him as the son of God, the savior of the world. Luke chapter 2 verse 19 says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She learned quietly. Continues to exercise these themes. Now, 
we don't know how Mary's stories end. Like, Mary isn't talked about much after the birth of Christ. But we see here that Jesus could not come into this world as a human being without the gift and blessing of childbearing. And so when we think about this Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Christ. Let us also remember to celebrate the fact that God has ordained childbearing as a privilege and a blessing through which Christ came. And Christ did all that. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth as in submission again to his Father to lead humanity. He came into this earth as a man to lead humanity, ahead of humanity, to salvation. Jesus, the head of the church, we are now being molded into the image of Christ. Men and women both each with our own distinct roles. And so we worship Christ. We worship him by stewarding our roles, by depending upon God, by learning from God, and by, by walking righteously in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see then the big idea, orderly worship flows from godly stewardship and submission to God's ordained role for his people. And so when we celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate the birth of Christ, let's continue to celebrate how all of us here have a role. I encourage here again the men to pray. But more than that, I want to encourage everyone here to also honor perhaps your mothers. When we celebrate the birth of Christ, remember your own mother and, the, and all she had to go through to bear you. Let's celebrate both men and women in this sense, in Christ, together. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ that comes through, that came through Mary. And how in Christ, the seed of the woman has defeated Satan. Lord, we are thankful that your promises are true and you fulfill your promises. Let us then trust in you and walk with you. Let us continue to honor you with our lives. Let us recognize our roles within the church. And let us continue to steward them well in submission to your will. All for your glory. Thank you, God, for giving us this time. Thank you, God, for teaching us. Allow us then to continue to walk with you righteously. Let us sing to you. I pray all this in your name. Amen.